All right, good morning. Go to Romans 5 in your Bible, please. Romans 5. Good morning, good morning. Romans 5, please. While I get set up. It's good to be with you. So, let's go to Romans 5. We're continuing our slog through Romans. All right, we spent the last couple of weeks emphasizing the first few verses of chapter 5. Now we want to continue. So let's start again at the first verse of chapter 5. So since we've been justified through faith, I'm in Romans 5. Sorry, I'm in fifth gear, so hang on tight. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith. So you have access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Into this grace which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, Perseverance produces character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So that's about as far as we've got. Now we continue. And as you see on the screen, we get to the heart and soul of Christianity here as Paul continues in this chapter. Look at verse 6. This is Christianity at its core. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died, now tell me if I read it correctly, Christ died for the godly. It says the ungodly. You have to get that straight. So let me, let me put it to you as simply as I can. Did Jesus die for me after I got my act straightened out and got, got my life turned around? Nope. He died for me while I was ungodly. This is huge. Let's continue. Verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. I'll say more about that in a moment. But God, and here again we get to the heart and soul of Christianity. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we got our, or after we got our act together, Christ died for us. No, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus didn't wait until you stopped sinning to die for you. He died for you while you were ungodly and while you were still a sinner. You got that? This is huge. Now verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood... That's his Good Friday on the cross blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? Now, earlier Paul talks about how Jesus has redeemed us from our sin, Romans 3. Now, by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross on Good Friday, now we are saved from the wrath of God. Wrath means anger. Hellfire anger. You are saved from that because of his blood that he shed for you on the cross. Because that blood is not just the blood of a man, that's the blood of the, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only God saves, 
And so it's Jesus then takes on flesh, the second person of the Trinity, begotten of the Father from eternity. He takes on flesh so that he can do this thing. Shed his blood on the cross that is the only sacrifice that atones for your sin and then turns God's wrath away from you. Because Jesus bearing all your sin in his body on the cross, he endures God's wrath in your place. This is why, brothers and sisters, Jesus cries out from the cross right before he dies, praying one of the Psalms, my Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To be forsaken by God is to be damned. If you read Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, that's what hell is like. To be forsaken and have not, not being in God's presence. And Jesus experienced that. So the wrath of God is experienced here on Jesus in your place. So if you believe in him, Jesus, God's wrath is not on you. It was all spent on Jesus. Now, on the other hand, if you tell me today, if any of you would say to me, well, that sounds really nice, Reverend, but I don't believe any of that, then God's wrath does remain on you. You'll notice this is all by faith. As you believe, so you have, Jesus says numerous times in the New Testament. And so as you believe in Jesus, who endured the wrath of God, as you believe, so you have. Not God's wrath, but now God's peace. That's how the chapter began. We have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have any questions so far? Well, one more thing on this and we'll read some more. Now you begin to see the enormity of Christianity. And sometimes, like last Sunday, when I tried to sing that last stanza of that hymn, you know, it just brings tears to your eyes that Jesus actually did this for me. I mean, it's, this is incredible. Okay, let's continue. So that was verse 9. For if, I'm in verse 10 now, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we not, now notice the tense of the verbs here, not whom we might or will have, but it's present tense. Whom we have now received reconciliation. It's present tense. So are you reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. It's not a possibility. It's now. Now verse 12. Therefore, now Paul's going to do a comparison between Adam, the first Adam, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Because Adam is the head of a fallen humanity, and Jesus is sent to be the head of a new humanity. That's why I like to call Jesus Adam 2.0, if you will. So verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's, that's Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. That reviews what Paul said in the earlier chapters that no one is excluded from being a sinner. Verse 13, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern, notice this language, a pattern of the one 
to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass, that means Adam's sin, of the one man, how much more did did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. That's Adam's. The judgment followed one's sin and brought condemnation. But the gift, this is Jesus, followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So if you're picking up what Paul's throwing down here, is that what Adam did counted for everybody. He sinned, now that goes to everybody. Yeah, but I wasn't there. doesn't matter. You're born with this sinful condition. Uh, Psalm 51 teaches this. From the time of my conception, I am a sinner. Psalm 51, verse 5. So, again, Adam sinned. Now everybody's a sinner as a result of his sin. But now, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the head of not a fallen humanity, but a restored and redeemed humanity, what Jesus did now counts for all. You picking this up? And since it counts for all, because his death counts for all, that means it counts for who? You. Okay, let's keep going. What verse was I on? 16? No, it's 18. 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness, that's our Lord's life, his perfect life, was justification that brings life for, here it is, see it, for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law was added, now take a look at this, this means the Ten Commandments here, We observed in Romans 3, remember Romans 3? The law doesn't save you. The commandments don't save you. According to Romans 3, it shows us our sin. It shuts our mouth up so that we quit quit making excuses and it holds us accountable to God. That was Romans 3. Now we learn more about what God does through the commandments. Check this out, verse 20 again. The law, namely the Ten Commandments, was added so that your sin or your trespass will increase. Now I want to just pause for a moment. So let's say that someone in our congregation by the name of Kuhlman keeps doing this sin over and over again. And let's say that Brad comes to visit Kuhlman and says, you can't be doing this anymore, Reverend. And Brad says, now, and he uses the commandment to apply to me. Now you've got to stop this. Stop what you're doing, Reverend. That does not save me. What does it do? It increases my sin. So if you think you're going to save people and help somebody by preaching law to them, doesn't work. All you'll do is show them their sin and increase it all the more. There's only one remedy for sin. What is it? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not the Ten Commandments. Are you picking this up? The God, Romans 1, you remember, this is why I said you have to read Romans at least three or four times a year. 
so that you've got it in your brain and your heart. Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Not the law, but the gospel. And what's the gospel? That's the good news that Jesus died for you and all your sins atoned for and God's wrath has been removed from you. Any questions so far? Yes, Mike, please. Well, keep in mind, too, that Paul in Romans says that everybody, whether you're a believer or not, the law, the Ten Commandments, is written on your heart. Remember he talked about that in Romans 2? And so before the Ten Commandments were ever, were ever given to Israel on Mount Sinai, everybody knew the commandments. But God gives the commandments to Israel, and by giving them to Israel, he then gives, shows everybody you're a sinner. There's no excuses, including the Jews. That's right. No more excuses for you folks. And again, keep Paul's point in mind in his earlier words here in Romans, that he was writing to Hebrews who looked at Gentiles and that they said, we're better than they are because we've got the commandments. And Paul says, no, you're not. You're just as bad as they are. You've got the commandments, but you break them. And the Gentiles, they know it's not right to murder, and so they don't. <laughs> and so Paul uses the commandments to show them that they're sinners just like everybody else. Anything else? Let's finish this, and I want to, then I've got some stuff on the screen that I want to show you. So again, verse 20, the commandments of the law was added so that the trespass or your sin would increase. But where sin increased, here, now notice the comparison. Grace increased all the more, and that's through Jesus Christ. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, quick word about grace. Grace is this. It is the favor of God. God's favor. He favors you for Christ's sake. It's kind of like this. Use this analogy. It's not perfect, but just run with it, okay? So those of you, if you were there, or maybe you've been to a wedding, but you know, we had a wedding here not too long ago with Joey Cradiville and Sophia Sidlacek. And you know, I'm standing up there with Joey, and the wedding party walks in, and doors closed, you know, and they, Joey hasn't seen Sophia all day. Okay? And then the door opens up in the south entrance. The door opens up, and Mark's got his daughter by the arm. And you should have seen Joey's face. He was absolutely delighted with his bride. And he could, this, that analogy, what, this is the analogy. This is God's favor over us. It's like, it's like the bridegroom seeing his bride walking down the aisle. That's God's favor. That's what it is. Okay. Any questions about that? All right. Now, I say that the Romans 5 here is indeed the heart and soul of Christianity. In fact, I like to put it this way. Um, there are some texts in the Bible that are so delicious, and Romans 5 is one of them. Now, I spoke at great length last two weeks about the goal and purpose of suffering from Romans 5. But today, from this wonderful chapter, we go to the heart and the soul of Christianity. Namely, what we believe as Christians of the Lutheran persuasion. Namely, namely, that God justifies the ungodly in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And that God reconciles his enemies to himself in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. 
and that you and I, all of us, as children of Adam, are rescued from sin and death as a free gift of God's grace, his undeserved kindness through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, perhaps one of the greatest dangers that we face in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate is to say this. I've been there and done that, Reverend. Why don't you move on to something more practical, something more <clears throat> relevant? Do you remember what I've taught you about when the church wants to be relevant? It's the death of the church. And I exaggerate this to make my point because the pastors in the church are constantly told by, by the members, deal with things that are relevant. Now, on the one hand, that might be a good thing in the sense that maybe we need to talk about a certain topic, you know? But generally speaking, when the church wants to be relevant, she dies. So, for example, recently, uh, just this summer, at the National Convention of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, they basically passed a resolution that said, you either get with the program or you're out. What does that mean? Here's what it means. That if you're a pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America or a theologian at one of its institutions, and you simply believe that marriage is to be between a man and a woman only, we're going to kick you out. You're done. And people want to be relevant. And so they'll say, okay. Now, if you've been paying attention, the United Methodist Church has been having a big to-do about this. And before the pandemic, there was going to be a huge vote on this particular topic. Pandemic hit, and then the vote was postponed. But now, post-pandemic, if you've been paying attention, many of the Midwestern faithful Methodist congregations in America have voted to leave the United Methodist uh, church body okay, because of this topic. They don't want to be relevant, but the ELCA wants to be relevant. And I'm going to speak something very harshly here, and I don't mean this to brag, but I mean this to call the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America to repentance. And if you hold their position, you too need to be brought to repentance. We need to tell these people they need to repent or they will go to hell. It's that simple. You cannot do this. And so finally then, we in the Missouri Senate, in love, need to speak the truth. That if you, if you will not teach what the Bible teaches about marriage, you will die as a church. And here's why. Because Jesus died for sinners. And now what's happening is in the church, generally speaking, sexual sin now is excluded from the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, you understand what I'm saying here? I'll be very frank. Let's say that Kuhlman decides he wants to be prolificate and immoral, debauched, if you will. And I want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with of any gender. Okay? And you know, today gender's fluid, so I could sleep with 52 genders. Okay? Hypothetically. Okay? Here's how it goes now in the church, generally speaking. The church will not address that. They will just say, whatever floats your boat, boat Brent, whatever floats your boat. And they, they do not say this to me. They will not say, this is not God-pleasing. You should not be doing this. You need to repent. And you need to, do, you need to use Jesus properly for the forgiveness of this sin, especially your sexual sin. That is now forbidden in the church. And this is why I mean, when you divorce, are you... Are you when you divorce Jesus from sinners and their sin, 
You are no longer a church. This is what's at stake. That's why this is so delicious. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Are you picking this up? That's why the beginning of, a, of an Orthodox faithful, I mean Orthodox small O. I don't mean Orthodox capital like Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox. Orthodox small O means right practice, right believing. Faithful Orthodox Christianity always begins the service how? Confession of sin and absolution. That's why it begins that way. Because Jesus came to forgive sinners their sins. We, we are not to exclude our sin from the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a hand, please. You, you brought up an interesting word when you said program. So now a lot of the churches now, uh, they don't have a service, they have a program. So it's an interesting interesting play on words you have there. Uh, I, I found that kind of like really relevant because it becomes really not even a church service anymore. All right, now you see, this is why we are sticklers on how we talk. <clears throat> let me give you an example of this, and, and don't, don't let me forget, Mike, I want to talk about this, this term. I want to give an example here of when, when your vocabulary changes, everything changes. Here's an example. For decades, if not a, almost a century, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, there was this terminology, circuit visitor. Now, if you're a visitor, what do you do? You visit. That's right. That's right. You visit. That is to say, for decades, if not an entire century, in, in circuits in the Missouri Senate, it's like a, like a group of congregations make up a circuit. Like I'm in, I'm in a circuit that has about six or seven congregations, and we elect a pastor in our circuit to be a circuit visitor. That's the way it was for decades. And so he would come and visit the congregations on a regular basis. And here's how it would go. He would attend a Bible class like this. He would sit and listen. He would come to the service and he would listen. Then he would meet with the congregation in toto. And one of the things that he would ask is he'd say, all right, elders, I want to see the communion records for the past five years. Show me the communion records. And he would look at the communion records and he would say, I see that so-and-so in this family, according to the records, if they're accurate, so-and-so in this family hasn't taken communion in 10 years. And he would ask, is that true? And the congregation would probably, yeah. And then he would say, what are you doing about it? He would ask, is, has anyone visited them? Reverend, have you visited them? And of course, the pastor and the congregation, no. And he would say, all right, it's time. So, okay, pastor and elders, you need to go visit this family. Then he would meet with the pastor individually. <laughs> you can begin to see why this doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> then he would meet with the pastor individually. And he would say, show me your library. I want to see your books in your library. Who's your favorite author? Who do you like to read the most? And if the pastor said, Joel Osteen, he's my go-to guy. And if you know who that is, that's bad news. And he'd say, oh, you can't read him anymore. Let me give you something better to read. That kind of thing. And there would be more conversation. But you get the gist. A visitor visits. Then, I forget the exact date. I gave a paper on this a long time ago, but I'd have to double check the exact date. <clears throat> then all of a sudden, the nomenclature changed from circuit visitor to circuit counselor. So when you go from visitor to counselor, I won't write the word on the board. Now, if you're a counselor, what do you do? 
You sit behind a desk and you wait for people to come to you. That's what counselors do. Seriously, <laughs> ask Lene Frerichs. She's a, a counselor, if you will, one of our members. She, I, don't, I don't think she goes and makes home visits. She may, I may be mistaken. But Lene, and I'm not denigrating her work here, don't misunderstand it. But Lene Frerichs, as a counselor, she has an office and people have to come to her. So this is an example. When terminology or nomenclature changes, everything changes. So Mike's your point. When, when the nomenclature is program and it's no longer this, if you use this terminology service, you know if you're a Lutheran, that means this. The Lord's here to serve you through his word and sacrament. You're there to receive his gifts. Program shifts the entire emphasis. So service would imply divine service. So here's the direction. God comes to us to speak his word and distribute his forgiveness in word and sacrament. Program, different ballgame. The whole emphasis shifts to this. What we do for God or whatever floats people's boat. It's a whole different ballgame. This is why we're sticklers for language. Language means things. <laughs> oh my goodness, I never intended to do that, but thank you for the, thank you so much. Is there anything else? All right, so, though this is, this is the heart and the soul of Christianity. So we simply preach and teach this over and over and over again. So I want you to think about it this way, like a bicycle wheel. And so the message of Romans 5 is like the hub of which all the spokes, all the other teachings from Scripture, they, they, they flow from the hub and which the whole thing turns. If we don't get this, and if we don't believe this, I'm telling you we're not Christian. No matter how relevant and useful my teaching may be. Take Romans 5 away, what we just read, then the Christian faith becomes nothing more than a second-rate religion among the world's religions. And we might as well here at Trinity just close up shop and go home right now and I'll make a tea time. So let me lay it out as simply as possible this morning. Here are the three main points then from Romans 5. First, that Jesus died for who? The ungodly. Second, that we are reconciled through his Good Friday death Namely, the sinner is reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And third, that this death of Jesus Christ applies to every son or daughter of Adam. Now, don't misunderstand what I just said. I'm not teaching universalism. Universalism teaches that everybody goes to heaven, nobody goes to hell. What I'm teaching here from Romans 5 is that when Jesus died, he died for everybody. Now, you have to trust that for it to apply to you personally. That's why through faith, as you believe, so you, re you have. That's why you have this concept. Do you remember in the book of Acts, the, the, the jailer asked the apostle, what must I do to be saved? And what, is, what does the apostle say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As you believe, so you have. And so as you believe in Jesus, so you have salvation. So will people go to hell? Yes, but who will be responsible for that? God? 
No, they will be. People will go to hell because they chose to. They said, no thank you, don't want any of that. But my point here from Romans 5 is that if Jesus didn't die for all, and if his blood doesn't, doesn't atone for every sin, then how can you ever be sure that he died for you and that his blood atoned for your sin? You can't. So there has to be this objective fact of our Lord's death for all. Now, based upon this teaching then, point three, that the blood of Jesus Christ applies to every son or daughter of Adam. That's why the pastor can say in the sermon, Jesus died for you. You're saved. And faith says what? Amen. Or, all your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. And how does faith talk? Amen. And as you believe, so you have. All right, so, as we heard in Romans 5, while we were still weak, notice, at the right time. This is huge in the Bible. At the right time. This is similar to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, where it says, at the right time, if you will, Jesus was born of a woman born under the law. This means salvation time. So while we were still weak at the right time, namely when Messiah came, Christ died for the ungodly. We heard from Romans 5 that God shows his love for us in that while we were, this is huge, still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, Christ died for us, for you in your place as your substitute. So when you see the crucifix hanging above the altar here at Trinity, it reminds you of all the other biblical stand-ins. Think Old Testament. Biblical stand-ins. Like, for example, the ram in Genesis 22 that spared whose life? Isaac's. Remember that story? Or how about this? The Passover lamb from Exodus 12. Or the scapegoat, if you remember, on the Day of Atonement. That's Leviticus 16. Read this on your own. I don't have time to read these chapters. But these are the biblical stand-ins that point to who? The big stand-in. The big substitute. The Lord. So the Passover lamb's blood was shed for the sake of Israel so that Israel would not be, the firstborn would not die. Remember that? Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Or, for example, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Do you remember that? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, the chastisement that he endured brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Here's my point then. According to Romans 5, Jesus is the stand-in for sinners. Jesus is the vicarious victim. Oop, yeah, there we go. I quoted that. I'm doing this for the first time, so you've got to have mercy on me. I'm trying this new. Instead of giving you a handout, which when I pick them up, there's, I make 80 copies and I get 80 copies back. So I'm not going to waste paper. I'm just going to have my copy and I'm going to do PowerPoint. I'm going to try that for a while. We'll see how it works. Now, if you'd like a copy of what I've written, you can request that and I'd be happy to give it to you. But I'm not going to make 80 copies anymore because it's a waste of paper because I find 80 copies on the table. It is what it is. In any event, Jesus is godly. Jesus is godly. We are not. 
Jesus is sinless. We are sinful. In his obedience to the law, the Ten Commandments, Jesus then becomes one of us and one with us in his death. Now, examples are hard to find. We heard it in Romans 5, didn't we? Paul says that you might find somebody. Remember what he said? You might find somebody who will die for a good person or lay down his life to save somebody he loves. Do you remember that? We just read it. I remember the story, oh, it's been at least 10, 15 years ago, a story of a bunch of hikers on the mountain who were caught in a snowstorm. And one of the hikers saved the other two by using his body as a shield against the cold. His death was heroic because he laid down his life to save his wife and his friend. Or what about the soldier who lays down his life to save a fellow soldier? And the battlefield, as you well know, is full of stories of heroism like this. Or how about the hero who gives up his life in defending his country and liberty? Those are certainly valiant, heroic deaths. They are. But they are not what? They are not vicarious in the sense that the Bible is talking about. Heroic, but not vicarious. That is to say, not as substitute sacrifices. Jesus died for the ungodly, for sinners, Paul says. For his enemies, Paul says. He took the place of his enemies. Not his family and friends, but his enemies. Those who wanted him dead and gone. And you and I were included in that. Yes, all of us. Decent, hard-working, church-going, right-decision-making people, apart from Jesus, here's the key, apart from Jesus, are ungodly, sinful enemies of God. And this is how God shows his love. While we were yet sinners, dead in our sins as a collective humanity, Jesus Christ died for us. Now, I'm pushing this to the hilt today, and I don't want, I don't want to hear anybody come out of here today, because if you do, I'm coming after you. I don't want to hear one person say, I've heard this so much, it's going to make me puke. If you say that, we need to have a talk. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart and soul of Christianity. This is the crisis of the Christian church, to not preach and teach this 24-7, 365. Now you begin to understand, when you read the New Testament, why sinners are the ones who are always gathered around Jesus. Not the people like the Pharisees who said, well, I'm a good person. I tithe, and I fast, I don't need that Jesus because I'm not a sinner. Okay, it was always sinners who were hanging around this Jesus, who desperately needed what? The forgiveness of their sins. That's you and me. That's why I'm pushing this to the hilt, okay? All right, so one life then, our Lord's life in exchange for ours. Jesus becomes the sinner in place of every sinner. And we in him then, in Jesus, that's the key, in Christ. Do your concordance study of the New Testament, how often Paul says, in Christ. In Christ, we are holy and we are righteous before God. That's what Paul means when he says we are justified by his, as the slide shows. By his what? What do you see on there? His blood. Huge in Romans 5. So brothers and sisters, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross, is your righteousness before God. It covers who you are with who Jesus is. 
So when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see what anymore? He doesn't see your sin anymore. Let me throw out another Bible passage. Because they all agree. The apostles all agree with one another. So John in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1 says what? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies or cleanses us from all sin. Did you catch that? All sin. Now I want to say something about that. That includes the sin that we commit against God and others. The blood of Jesus Christ purifies and atones for that sin. But now here's this going to, your jaws are going to hit the floor now. All sin. That also includes the sin that people commit against you. So again, you've heard this story, but I'm going to say it again because it bears repeating. My good friend, Dr. John Kleinig, the Australian pastor and theologian. Again, if you don't know who he is, look him up and listen to everything he teaches online. Seriously. And it may, you may start to listen to him and say, it's over my head. Stick with it. Don't give up. It's worth the time and the effort. All good things you have to work hard at. Just like listening to sermons, by the way. Listening to sermons or Bible classes like this, it takes a discipline. We've lo we're losing that. Sorry. <laughs> what was I saying? So to illustrate this, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. The sin that we commit, but also the sins that people commit against us. So Dr. Kleinig, a long time ago, preached from this text in Indonesia, 1 John. And after the service was over, the Indonesian pastor came up and gave John a big hug. And they don't do that. Men don't hug each other in Indonesia. Okay? But this pastor was just absolutely overjoyed and said, John, you won't believe what happened today. And John goes, well, what happened? And the pastor says, a woman in our congregation took communion for the first time in years. And of course, John said, well, that is, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And the pastor, but you don't know the whole story, John. Here's why she wasn't coming to communion. Because she had been sinned against sexually. I don't need to say more. Those of you who know, women who are sinned against sexually feel what? Dirty. Polluted. Unworthy. When she heard the preaching from that text, that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, purifies and cleanses even from the sins committed against her, she then went to communion to receive the very blood of Christ that was shed on the Good Friday cross that even purified and cleansed her from that sin committed against her. This is one of these moments when you sit back and when, when Christianity hits you like a ton of bricks like this, it's like, this is incredible. All right. Any questions? Yes, question, please. Uh, I think when you talk about the first time when you were talking about the Lord's Prayer, and I said, now the Lord's Prayer means something totally different than, you know, forgive us our sins and those sins. That's right. Forgive us our trespasses. Notice, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Anything else? You see, this is the heart and soul of Christianity. So we don't ever move on from that. All right, so. Now you see why what I'm doing today has to be repeated and reviewed and we can never take all this stuff for granted. This is the part that's so unbelievable that we cannot by our own reason or strength or senses believe. Namely that Jesus should do what? Come and die for who? His enemies. The ungodly. For sinners. 
and that in his death we are justified before God the Father. So do you see what this means, brothers and sisters? This is the end of all transactions with God. Of all attempts to do what? To bargain with God or to try to bribe him or to try to obligate God. I'm here to tell you that God acts, A-C-T-S. He acts. He loves you in his son, Jesus Christ. And he did it without asking for your permission. <laughs> he just simply did it. Second, the death of Jesus Christ reconciles us to God. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Notice, we are not reconciled to God by anything we do. We are reconciled to God because of what he did in his son, Jesus Christ. So the death of Jesus Christ makes peace. God has made peace with you in Jesus. Now, this isn't reconciliation that we usually think of, where you've got two parties that are at war with one another, and someone then is called in to bring them to the bargaining table and work out terms of what? Reconciliation. Any of you worked in HR departments? <laughs> okay. Well, we're not talking about that here. We're not talking about labor disputes here or marital, marital disputes that are uh, settled in those ways. Namely, you give a little, you get a little. You get on with the business at hand, okay? But God reconciles the enemy while he is still the enemy. He makes peace with the sinner while he or she is still a sinner. Paul wrote the, to the Corinthians, you have it on the screen, that God was in Christ reconciling to the world, world to himself, not counting or not reckoning your sins against you. So on Good Friday, in the darkness of our Lord's death, God said to the world, I'm at peace with you. In your baptism, brothers and sisters, when water was poured on you in the name of God, the Father said through his Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm at peace with you. In the Lord's Supper, with our Lord's own body and blood as a gift to you, God is saying to you, I'm at peace with you. So reconciled. You are reconciled. Do you realize the implications here? It isn't a matter of, listen carefully because you hear this language all the time. It is not a matter of getting right with God, but of believing that in Christ you are right with God now as you are. I'm going to say this again for emphasis because this is the biblical teaching. Again, this isn't a matter of getting right with God, but rather believing that in Christ you are right with God even as you are. So, the third point I want to talk about, and this is where we're going to finish, the death of Jesus Christ, the heart and soul of Christianity, as I've taught you, applies to every son or daughter of Adam, without exception. Jesus literally is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this particular painting is the Grunewald. The, the, the painter is Matthias Grunewald. And he painted, this is part of it. This isn't the whole altarpiece. But notice on the right, who do you think the man on the right is? It's John the Baptist. And in Latin, you can't see it. You'd have to come up close to see it. But it's John chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus is the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And you have the Passover lamb at his feet as we see it on the left. And you'll notice this is just for fun. Grunewald, if you look at John the Baptist's index finger, you say, man, he made a mistake. Fingers aren't that long, right? He did this on purpose. John's purpose was to be a finger, to point to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away. That's why he made his finger extra long. <laughs> and you can't see it very well, but if you look closely at our Lord's hands and feet, it's grotesque. You know, this isn't Sunday school crucifixion picture Jesus time. No blood, no gore. This is as it is. This is the death of Jesus for you. Now, by the way, he painted this, this altarpiece for people who, were, who had all kinds of sicknesses and really suffered greatly. And so he made Jesus. It, it doesn't show it very well, but if you look at the actual piece in person, Jesus has this green, sick tint to his body. He did that on purpose to show that Jesus identifies with you sick sinners and had a great influence on these people who saw this. All right, that's a side note. Now, I wanted to, Jesus is the type of the coming one. You've got Adam on the left. He, he taught this in Romans 5, right? He's the type of the coming one, Adam is. That means Adam, in his embodiment of humanity, was a prophetic picture of Jesus in his incarnation embodying all humanity in his body. So Jesus is the second Adam, the head of a new humanity. The first Adam brought what, according to Romans 5? The first Adam brought what? Sin and death. The second Adam brings holiness and obedience and life. Jesus kept every little point of the law and became obedient to it unto death on the cross. So I'm, we're running out of time, so I want to go to this. We are then reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ as this artist shows you. God the Father gives up his son into death on the cross and it's all for what? To reconcile you to himself. Brothers and sisters, this is the hub, this is the heart, this is the foundation of Christianity. Any questions? Well, let's pray the Lord's Prayer here. Let me, let me escape out of here real quick and then we'll pray. Here we go.